You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Radiotherapy, RRR's Sunday morning program about all things medical and psychiatric. A big thank you to the Marinara people for a great show this morning. We'll be taking you 3 to 11am when the Einstein and Gogo people come in to fill up our brains with clever sciencey stuff. Now, this morning on this magnificent March day, a holiday weekend in Melbourne, beautiful outside, <clears throat> we have a great show for you. We're going to be hearing from a special guest, Penny Stoyles, who is a science educator and a representative of the ANZ Gynecological Oncology Group. This group is fighting women's cancers and they have a challenge for us this month, month which will not only take us closer to a cure, but also get us fitter while we try. The wonderful Perry Partum is back with us again to look at the role of pets in the treatment of PTSD. And the very erudite Dr SK will be reviewing the new series of Bates Motel and asking, did Norman Bates have epilepsy? Hmm, I think if he did, he had a lot of other things as well. (laughs) We'll be back right after this. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Well, good morning, Dr. Perry Pardum. Good morning. How, how are you? This is the first time I've met you. First, I like because I wasn't here last time when you were on, and I, just, I heard you at home. You were very, very interesting. So it's lovely to welcome you. Thank you very much. Have you had been having a good uh, long weekend so far? Yes, yeah, been very placid, and as you say, beautiful weather. It's great, isn't it? Mm. And, and you're going to tell us about dogs in a little while. Yeah, so perfect weather for dog walking, incidentally. Well, my dog's away at the minute from me. She's about um, 65 kilometres away from me at the moment for the last 48 hours, and I am pining. I want to tell you, I miss my puppy. Oh. I'm Sure, that's so true. I'm really looking forward to hearing what you've got to say. SK, how are you? I'm well, thanks. I've had an interesting week actually, uh, anabolic. So I've spent uh, Thursday and Friday up uh, based in Darwin. I did a, a flight out by light plane to a remote Aboriginal community to uh, assess people living in remote parts of the country. So that was an eye-opener for me. Uh, the other thing I'll throw at you this morning is, uh, you know, just through a journal scan over the last month, uh, the, the latest issue of the Australian New Zealand Journal of Psychiatry did a prevalence survey looking at the prevalence of personality disorders in women. And I hesitate to mention this to you because I don't want to get you goat, but I, I found the figure that they came up with uh, ludicrously high. Uh, this, this paper... Uh, looked at a community sample of, of women and interviewed them, uh, not, a, not a clinical sample, so there's a woman just out living in the community, and concluded that one in five of them had a diagnosable personality disorder. And that to Who me are they? outrageously Who are, high. Who are they? I can't remember the researchers' names, nor would I like to uh, name them publicly on air for fear of uh, mobs with pitchforks. But it just seemed a ludicrously high figure for a a disorder that's statistically defined by definition is quite rare. Which personality disorder are you talking about? The highest prevalence seemed to be on the uh, the what are called cluster C personality disorders, in in particular a a personality disorder called avoidant personality disorder. But there was a a fair smattering of borderline personality disorder there as well, which is the one that we see most commonly perhaps in clinical practice. I think it's really interesting that there was, what that's what, 20% of the population of women with a diagnosable disorder, which actually... You know, in order to qualify for that diagnosis means you have to, it actually has to impair your function. You know, it can't just be, some, you know, a, a bit of a trait, a tendency to sort of prefer your own company. It has to actually be a problem for you in interacting or, or, or in any other way that you function. So that's really significant and that's sort right. of questionable. 
in this week um, in which the International Women's Day fell, mm-hmm. or in the last couple of weeks. Yes, it was last yeah. week, yep. Yeah, absolutely. And this, this avoidant personality in particular relates to difficulties in interpersonal relationships and people tend to have a, a fear of rejection in, in social or interpersonal circumstances. There's a big crossover with social phobia disorder there as well. Uh, but to say that one in five women has a personality disorder that is severe enough to impact markedly on their day-to-day functioning to me just seems beyond the pale. Well, I must have missed that in my you know hours of daily journal reading. I don't know how I missed it when I just read everything from cover to cover, of course, as you know. But I'm going to go home and have a look at that and have a... Have, we must talk about that again because that just seems so dodgy. One of the things that strikes me about our profession is that our nomenclature around personality is... You've got to, be, you've got to say it's crap. I mean, I'm sorry. Yes. It's always been crap. And I'm really... That's the first place I'd have to start. I mean, which... How do you describe people's personality in a bunch of... And psychiatry also has a terrible history of pathologising women. And, you know, in the name of equity, if nothing else, let's do a similar uh, community survey and try and find out the rates of personality disorder in men by the same token. Was it just purely looking at one gender, was it? This, this... That's right. It was uh, women only. And why they chose to ask that question, who knows? But uh, ridiculously high figure. Okay, well, let's, let's, let's bring that back again. That'd be really interesting to have a look at that and see whether we can, I guess if it's got through to the, to the journal, it must have passed a bit of muster with a few peer-reviewed people, so... Yes, pre- presumably many of them male. <laughs> Who knows? You obviously didn't review the paper and all. I didn't. Yeah. I didn't see that one. So the other thing that happened this week, which is interesting, was the uh, whole argument from um, uh, our, our friend with the red hair from Queensland. What's her name again? Pauline. She uh, had a bit of a uh, false start on last Sunday morning on the Insiders about vaccinations, which got everybody talking. Did you guys see that? I heard the Insiders this morning, and uh, yes, I think she was backpedalling on her comments. She was uh, encouraging people to do their own research about uh, the harmfulness or otherwise of, uh, of vaccines and draw their own conclusions. But unfortunately, when you do your own research and you Google dangers of vaccination, you get uh, taken to the internet pages of nutters, typically. It's interesting. I thought I, I watched the original uh, interview and I, like most other people in the medical profession, I guess I sort of started throwing my toast crusts at the screen as I, as I was watching her. And, uh, but what strikes me is that the chord that she's hitting, I think, which is interesting, is not just the one about whether it's good to have your children uh, immunised and whether they're going to have a reaction, but it's the whole maverick, um, uh, libertarian argument of you shan't make me do anything and the government shouldn't make me do anything. And also this idea that science is somehow suspect. And exactly. That, you know, everybody can, can be their own science expert and there's no such thing as expert knowledge. Because you're an elitist if you believe that. That's right. And I, I just... Um, it just struck me so much this week hearing, hearing that... that um, it took me back to uh, this whole concept about the nanny state in medicine and why do we have to wear seat belts and why do we have to have bike helmets and why do we have to have immunisations. Um, I, I just think if you take that view, and I know we have a lot of listeners who do take that view and, you might want, and, and, and there's an argument for it, I think the other argument against it, which is the integrity argument, is if you want to believe that, then you better have your own 
medical health service set up somewhere in your back garden because when your child has measles encephalitis or whooping cough in you know then i can tell you nanny's going to step in and help you so if you want to have integrity on that argument about me being a libertarian i just think you've got somewhere to go before you can see that you're separated from the nanny state when you need help so i, I had promised myself that i wouldn't talk about donald trump at all this <laughs> <laughs> but um actually it's interesting considering the discussions that they're having over there with the healthcare. Um, repeal and replacement legislation and mm. um, the idea that you can redeem tax credits if you want to have optional health care uh, but that it's completely optional and it would be your decision therefore to you know invest in your own health care which <laughs> I think in Australia is a really foreign concept for us but over there you know there was um, one of the senators who said you should just um, poorer people should just not buy mm. a new iPhone every year um, that's right they should put the money towards their own health care and then there was a rebuttal which suggested that it costs about $25,000 a year I suppose to ensure someone really for the true costs of their health care mm. risk um, and that's a lot of iPhones actually yes mm. <laughs> and poor, poor Ryan says I can't understand how people expect well people to fund sick people through an insurance scheme <laughs> which is kind of how insurance works yeah <laughs> it brings us back to this whole idea of what is the society and and mm. is there such a thing which is you know it's interesting because people are making these decisions they're healthy people generally in, you know, in, in, in uh, Congress or wherever, in Parliament here whatever that and it's, it's something Sometimes I think it's hard for people to imagine that they're going to be users of health services when they're healthy. And it's uh, just, you know, I, I always suggest to people who are talking like that, just make sure the gods aren't listening while you say that. Yeah, it was a big shock to me when I had my appendix removed um, <laughs> that I became a user rather than a provider of health care. Right. It was a very strange experience being the on other, the other end. The other comment that came out of that uh, debate in the States, and I'm not sure it was Ryan or one of the other politicians, somebody was quoted as saying that poor people aren't interested in having health insurance. Yeah. And and, uh, mm. and uh, it's a circular logic, really, because you look at the numbers of poor people who have health insurance, they're very low. You could argue that they're not interested in having it. But on the other hand, it's so bloody expensive that, of course, it's not a priority for them when mm. they've got to put food on the table. It's crazy. It's extraordinary conversation. Three triple R. Well, we're back again on Triple R's Radiotherapy. It's Dr. Anna Bollock speaking here, and I've got Dr. S.K. and uh, uh, Dr. Perry Pardon with me in the, in, the, in the studio. Now, we have online uh, a lady called Penny Stoyles, and I'm going to check to see whether you're there, Penny. Hello, Penny. Hello, I'm here, yes. Hello, Anna <laughs> Hello, how are you, Penny? Uh, look, thank you so much for coming on this morning. Um, you're in the studio with the three of us today, and you've um, been involved very heavily with a group called um, uh, the Gynecological uh, Oncology Group. Is that right? Yes, it's called ANSGOG for short, but it's ANSGOG. the Australian that's, that's New Zealand... good. I'm glad it's called Australian ANSGOG. New Zealand Gynecological Oncology Group, which is hard to say in one breath. Fantastic. Yeah. And who yeah. are they? Who are they, Penny? Well, they're a group of about um, 700 members who are doctors and clinicians and nurses and so on. It's a not-for-profit organisation. And they um, sort of sponsor and devise clinical research into gynaecological cancers. So clinical research is um, the way changes are made in, in the way different cancers are treated. Okay, and and how yeah. how are you involved? How did you get to be involved in this group? Well, I'm actually not a clinician or a doctor or a nurse or anything. I'm a patient. I was a patient. Um, so 30 years ago, I had cervix cancer, and um, I got involved in a local cancer support group here in Melbourne, 
and that was doing that for quite a long time. And then um, I was asked to join their consumer and community committee. So okay. there are about five of us who um, have had various different um, gynaecological cancers who provide advice from the consumer's point of view rather, or the, the patient's point of view. Okay. And so this yeah. has been a long journey for you by the sound of it, 30 years since you yeah. had your diagnosis. Yes. You sound like you're yes. doing well, which is very pleasing. Oh, look, I, yeah. Well, one of the things is I had, I had cervix cancer and back in the day the standard treatment was a radical hysterectomy. Yes. So um, that cured my cancer, but it also meant it lost, I lost my fertility yes. um, and I hadn't had children at that stage. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, one of the stories I tell now is that through, you know, little step-by-step changes, uh, women who would, are now diagnosed with my type of cervix cancer could have surgery that actually preserves their fertility. How, how would that so happen? They'd have a less radical procedure, do you mean? Yeah, they'd have a less radical procedure where only part of their the cervix is removed rather than their whole uterus, yeah. Okay. And so that's, that's one of the things that's happened through clinical trials. So the funding those clinical trials is often the problem, isn't it? Yes, yeah. Well, so ANSCOG, the not-for-profit organisation, so it gets most of its money um, from government grants, philanthropists and through fundraising, which is what this Go Step for Gynae is all about, raising funds as well as having fun and getting fit. So tell us, what is Go Step for Gynae? I was going to ask you, what is that? sounds a very yes. catchy name. <laughs> well, it's a challenge to do 10,000 steps a day for 30 days. And you can begin any time in March or April. Mm-hmm. Um, and you register through um, Everyday Hero. So there's a, a web address, everydayhero.com.au forward slash event, forward, mm-hmm. st- sorry, forward slash go step 2017. Mm-hmm. So people can register there. Then you, if you do that, you get a fit band and a whole lot of advice and, and um a unique code so you can then invite your friends or family to sponsor you for your 10,000 steps a day and so that basically uh, raises some funds for uh, clinical trials that it also spreads the word a bit so you know and it gets you fitter so there's there's three good things that happen there um we know a lot of cancers and a lot of gynecological cancers are related to obesity so we're trying to get that message across that if you get fit and eat well then you're reducing your chance of cancer Mm-hmm. Um, we're trying to raise awareness because we know lots of women don't talk about cancer down there yep. and they should talk about it more and um, we also want people to have fun. So, and, and in that, I just heard you say that you get a free fit band. Is that one of those things that clocks you? Yeah, you do. That sounds like a pretty good deal. <laughs> yeah, you get it. It, it clocks your steps and your calorie counter and your heart rate. Yeah. So we, so we raise money while we get fit if we participate? Yes. That sounds brilliant. And where's the money going to be going to? Do you know um, who receives the the research funding when it's raised? Well, well, what happens is um, various groups of um, doctors, so it's it's sort of cooperative research, um, put into um, ANSGOG to say we want to do a clinical trial. It goes through a whole lot of processes, um, uh, both at the hospital level and at ANSGOG level, to say, yes, this trial um, may go ahead. And then they recruit... Um, patients, so ask patients who are in the right demographic if they'd like to go on the trial and it costs around about um, 
$15,000 a year to keep a patient on a trial. Mm-hmm. So the patients don't have to pay anything. Mm-hmm. So they're, so that's the sort of funding it goes to. Okay. Yeah. And and uh, have you had much uh, over the last few years, have, have you had seen any results from any of your um, fundraising? Well, we've, we've, we've basically raised, you know, quite a lot of money. Um, in terms of, you know, specific results, um, uh, not, you know, these trials take quite a long time. Sure, sure. But um, basically we're sort of, the, the trials are aiming to um, not find the miracle cure. That's not what we're on about because right. most of the, our cancers are treated by um, a mixture of chemotherapy, radiotherapy and surgery. So it's trying to sort of tweak that to find what's best, what gives um, women the best quality of life yes. um, to increase their lifespan um, or to reduce harmful side effects of, you know, the current treatments because we all know that, you know, chemo and radiotherapy are the nicest things to have to go through. Yeah, and uh, Penny, Dr. SK here, uh, just, just a quick question. Hello. Does the work of ANSCOG cover the whole gamut of female reproductive cancers or is it, it more does, focused on yeah. cervical cancer? No, no, not at all. It, it covers over um, ovarian, um, cervical cancer, endometrial, or it's sometimes called uterine cancer, so people get a bit mixed up about those two, um, and some other rarer cancers like fallopian tube and vulva cancer. And I think it's important to know that even though all those bits of a woman's body are pretty close together, the cancers are usually quite different and unrelated. So you can't say, oh, I've got one treatment or one process you go through if you've got a gynecological cancer. They're all quite different. And what what I believe has been found lately is with um, increased obesity in the population, the rate of uterine or endometrial cancer has gone up markedly, which is a real worry. Okay, we've seen great breakthroughs in the last 10 or so years with cervical cancer, with the cervical cancer vaccine. Yeah. Is there anything similarly yeah. promising on the horizon for other types of cancer? Well, I don't think so because this is... Cervix cancer is the only one of these cancers that actually there is a test for um, and that you can find out that it's happening, um, you know, in the pre- pre-cancer stage really just before it gets really bad. But all the other ones, there is no test for. So that's really, um, it's really important that women know their own body and if they think anything's going wrong or it's not quite right that they really get it tested out i think or go to their gp or or a doctor and just get checked out not be embarrassed about it and hello penny uh dr perry Pardum here hi i'm just very interested in all of this stuff because that's that's the kind of psychiatry i do with women um who are having babies i i wonder if you could just describe some of the symptoms that you think women should mention to their doctor if they are concerned it's they're very non-specific but there is a kind of a group of symptoms aren't there that could indicate they had endometrial or other cancers yeah i think um any sort of unusual bloating sort of in the abdomen um and and they're sort of feeling full when really quickly you know unusually quickly um that's i think often related to um ovarian cancer and, and I'm not a doctor I'm no no patient, sorry but, sorry you know, I maybe that's not a fair question um, you know a, a, sort of ab- abdo pain anything that goes a bit unusual with your 
um, bowel or your bladder, like mm. frequent ur- urination or having diarrhea or constipation, that sort of thing when you're um, not, not um, sure. Any sort of irregularity with um, periods and unusual discharges and things like that. Mm. Um, so the and idea is not to ignore those sorts of things, but to get them sorted yeah, out. Pa- you yeah, you know, unusual pain during intercourse, even that sort of thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. and you know, one somebody once said to me, "Oh, I don't want to, t- I don't like talking about it, or you know, it's a bit embarrassing or something." But a very good way of doing it is when you go into the doctor, you hang your dignity up on you on the door, yes. on the door um, <laughs> book, and then you pick it up on the way out again. I think that's the best way to that's, deal that's, with it. That's because a lesson for women about pap smears yeah. and men about rectal yeah. cancer and prostate yeah. cancer. That's exactly and, right. Um, the other one is nobody ever dies of embarrassment. Yes. <laughs> That's a really good thing yeah. to remember. And and really these yeah. tests are quite quick. They're quite non-traumatic. There's no puncturing of skin yeah. usually involved. It's just a quick yeah. wipe or something and it's all, and yeah. it's well, for, peace for of mind. Smith, but I think mm. I think for ovarian and and, and yeah. um uh uterine cancer it's it's more about you know a, a pelvic exam and a bit of a poke around to see if there's any lumps and bumps and then you know w- working from there. Mm. And it's enormous yeah. peace of mind, isn't it, when you do when you do um, get that checked? It is yeah. enormous peace of mind. I, look, and um, I know um, women who've had had uh, cancers, and they still go back, even though the doctor says you don't need a checkup anymore. You're five years down the track. They still go and have a checkup every year just to yeah. for the peace of mind. I think it's yeah. really important, and that's what um, our support group, when it was running um, more more than it is now we we set up our face uh, support group before facebook so oh. you know it was a way of getting together and, and now a lot of this thing have these groups happen through social media but you know it's just good to talk to people and say is this normal or is this not normal or you know have a chat about that have a chat about um how you're feeling and um we even encourage the male partners to come along you know, every now and then, and they get together and have a chat as well because they find it, you know, it's often very difficult to cope with. Yes. Well, everyone's got a woman like in their the life. Cancer. Yeah, it's, a, it's difficult to cope with the cancer, but it's difficult to cope with when it affects your femininity. Yes, of course. A double, it's a double whammy, yeah. I guess, in that sense, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. are you um, are you still working with the group, or you've moved to other things now and working well, on the work fundraising? With, with Anne. I work with Anscog to do the fundraising. Our support group um, is, is still going, but uh, there's not the need for it as much for, for the two reasons, the social media reason I just mentioned, mm-hmm. but also, luckily, cervix cancer is going down in the population quite a bit for the, you know, the fact that we're now doing um, testing. Uh, there's a vaccination, but also you know, there is a bit more awareness and testing. Right. happening and so hopefully we you know once the whole population gets vaccinated and the new hpv tests come in it'll um even reduce the incidence more and more so yeah that's right isn't it penny that um mm. there's a new test for um it's still a pap smear but they're actually doing a slightly different test on the um, yeah on i don't know an awful lot about it and i believe it's going to be introduced um later this year um but I think it's it's working in conjunction with the fact that um, the population's being vaccinated as well. Yes. Mm. So it's it's a it's a double sort of procedure for for controlling 
and reducing the amount of um, cervix cancer in the population, which is fantastic. Well, this week we saw International Women's Day uh, last week and um, one of the suggestions that was made was to think about uh, what would happen with a day without women doing the work they do. And uh, you're an example, Penny, of uh, one of the thousands and thousands of women in the background of, uh, of uh, our communities who just work tirelessly for on things like fundraising which is overwhelmingly yeah. um, uh, driven by women in our society all over the place yeah. in, in charities all kinds so you marvelous that you're doing yeah. this and marvelous you've raised so much money already so thank you so much for all that and good thank luck you. with your new thank with you for giving giving us a, um, a bit of time and being an advocate for ANSCOG as well do you want to put a last wrap in for the website that we that we're all going to yes. go to now and yes. get our fit bands yes What's it's called Everyday Hero, all one word. Yes. Yeah, .com.au forward slash event and then forward slash go step 2017. Well, all our listeners are going to the website Thanks. as we speak. Thank you so much, Penny. I hope so. Good luck for Thank that. Thank you we'll for all... the time. No worries. Have a good morning. Bye. Thank you. So that was Penny Doyle's. Thank you so much for coming on to talk about um, Go Step and I hope everyone participates in that for Women's Cancer this week particularly. Extra reason to do it. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. That was Elvis Presley doing Hound Dog and it was chosen for us by the wonderful Kent because we asked for a dog-related song, of course. And uh, we've got uh, Dr Perry Partonwitz this morning. Now, Perry, that was a dog-related song because you're going to talk to us about dogs and, and therapy. And yeah, that's right. Tell us how they're being used in therapy. Well, uh, my interest in this was actually sparked by um, an article on the ABC website last week which talked about a woman who had had quite severe and really crippling post-traumatic stress disorder to the point where she couldn't leave the house uh, and eventually she um, was connected in with therapy and one of the um, really one of the therapies that was implemented was having a, a support dog with her and uh, it's really transformed her life she's been able to get out of the house again she is able again to study at a university in fact the University of Newcastle was the place where she was studying nursing and they had to alter some of their guidelines and procedures to allow her to bring her dog to class but they were keen to support her in um, returning to study so it was um, quite a success story and so it made me think about what other areas um support dogs or therapy dogs might be used and if there's any evidence to support their use so i had a little look around there is a bit of an evidence base in america they've used it quite a lot there's a couple of programs that have been running for about four or five years now with veterans um, of the afghanistan and iraq wars um, treating primarily initially people with physical disabilities but much more recently they've started to use them for psychological therapy as well um, for people with post-traumatic stress disorder relating to war trauma so um, that's actually been highly successful and there's a couple of um, well there's quite a lot of um, information about the kinds of benefits that accrue from the use of dogs in specific settings so um, I think a lot of this would make a lot of sense to most of us who have a dog and who know how much pleasure the companionship of an animal might bring us. But it's, I suppose, useful to think about the kinds of research parameters that we might think about if we're going to try and use it as a specific therapy tool. So the things that they uh, studied, obviously, were things like depression, uh, anxiety, uh, um, and more specific sort of physiological responses to anxiety, like cortisol levels, uh, blood pressure, heart rate. 
uh, and and then sort of self-report symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, specifically like dissociative symptoms, which is where someone, say, has an intrusive memory that comes back and sort of cuts them off from where they are in that moment in time, um, where they lose track of surroundings and, and are preoccupied by trauma that's come up from the past. Um, but also nightmares and sleep quality and, um, and, and ability to relate to people around them. So on all of these measures, actually, uh, therapy dogs seem to be very helpful. Um, and there are specific techniques that they train the dogs to use, particularly for these veterans of combat situations. So, for example, when um, they notice that someone is sort of frozen and seems to be preoccupied by something that's internal rather than external the dog is trained to then make a physical contact with the person and then by that bring them back to the present they often do some other quite specific things like um, train the dog to be in front of or behind the veteran because then they feel less frightened of what might be ahead of them or behind them and they also get them to go into unfamiliar settings before them and do a little bit of a like a perimeter sweep (laughs) Um, so that they don't feel quite so anxious about what's going to happen so I mean that's a very specific setting and these these veterans are quite traumatised. But I think that what was really interesting was from the qualitative responses, which allowed the veterans to talk about their own subjective experience of what benefits they had experienced. And it was all about uh, feeling more connected to another being, having the physical contact to another being, um, and feeling that they had a companion. uh, And it seemed to help with their resilience in general, um, their confidence in social settings and their ability to go out into public space by themselves. What sort of dogs are they using? Are we are we talking Labradors here or German Shepherds or uh, well, um, Pitbulls? <laughs> There's a couple of different programs. There's one that uses exclusively Golden Retrievers, which is fair enough because Golden Retrievers are lovely. <clears throat> but there's another one... Um, Self-evident, really, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Um, but they, there's another program that uses shelter dogs and they're trained in a prison setting mm. prior to being um, deployed in the use of um, therapy dogs for veterans. So That's interesting because my dog was a, um, a rescue dog and she'd been running wild apparently somewhere up in Mildura before we got her when she was about one years old and she was she was anxious and a mess when they first picked her up and she's bonded to us and we've bonded to her like glue and I wonder whether we've mutually helped each other yeah mutual therapy. <laughs> well this is interesting to me because obviously veterans and people who have um, combat related PTSD aren't the only groups which have been studied um, in terms of companion animals. There's also a bit of research um, for people with dementia and also for children suffering with autism and I suppose the thing that links all of these different um, these different phenomena sorry, I, I noticed that you've um, pricked up your ears SK. Well yes, much like a dog might but uh, <laughs> yeah, I actually have a peripheral involvement with uh, a, a program called Dogs for Dementia, which is uh, running in Australia, and uh, oh. dementia uh, specific trained dogs to uh, prompt a person with dementia, for example, to take their medications at the right time or indeed to remain hydrated or to eat because uh, as dementia progresses, people often lose the cues to, to take sustenance, and they can also be trained to uh, uh, help prevent wandering. That's, and, uh, that's people ridiculous. People getting lost. I'm picturing a dog, you know, tapping one paw on the other, saying, "Come on, it's five o'clock, Mabel. Is come on." How does but this, leading how does them that towards work? the bench, perhaps where the uh, where the the food is or where the medications are. Good I don't Lord. actually know how it works, but there is a whole specific training program for dogs with dementia. I think it's a pilot program of about ten or twelve dogs amazing. being rolled out nationally at the moment or walked out nationally. <laughs> that is amazing, and it's a similar uh, principle, I think, in um, the care and protection of children with autism, who similarly have a, um, a tendency sometimes to wander and similarly also have sometimes the difficulty communicating distress or their need for um, food or water with 
people and so it's that's that's the way in which I think they're being used for children with severe disabilities as a consequence of autism so I suppose what unites all of these three groups is that we feel that at the moment we don't have all the answers in terms of a cure or an effective treatment for all of these particular syndromes and so what we're trying to do is to improve the quality of life for all these people who suffer these various conditions in various different ways so um I suppose what I'm always interested in is why is it so? <laughs> and uh, there is a bit of in, uh, interest in the role of oxytocin in all of these processes. So they've actually directly administered oxytocin to veterans and found that they have um, reduced physiological arousal um, in response to evoked memories of trauma. And the theory goes that it's actually oxytocin that's mediating all of these positive, warm, fuzzy feelings and, you know, reducing anxiety and reducing um, uh, nightmares and improving sleep quality. Oxytocin um, mediates some of the parental bonding uh, relationship stuff, does, yes, doesn't that, it? Yes, that's right. And also it's, um, it's been used in autistic children to try and promote uh, social cohesion and, attach- and attachment. So um, I think it's a really useful uh, hormone. I thought I might very briefly talk about it. Isn't, isn't it also the love hormone as well? You know, when we're bonding with a new partner, we're sort of bathed in this massive oxytocin release as well. That's right. So it's an all-around very positive hormone. Mm. And I thought I might just describe it. Um, so uh, I suppose I might read my little my little blurb, which I've put somewhere. Um, so yes, it's a hormone that's produced in the brain, and it increases a sense of trust, empathy, optimism, mm. and seems to be a central mediator of the, in fact, the placebo effect, amongst other things. So it mm. also reduces pain experience. Mm. Uh, we know that oxytocin neurons originate in the hypothalamus, but they have lot, lots of widespread connections throughout the brain um, to a lot of the brain centres that particularly control behaviour and emotion. So they modulate the HPA axis, which is how um, I suppose our emotional state gets communicated into a, a physical response. Where that's our the hypothalamic rate, pituitary axis. Yes, yep. that's right. So mm-hmm. yes, um, our heart rate goes up or down, um, our blood pressure goes up and down, that sort of thing. Yep. Um, and some some other areas of the brain which are really important in um, in generating an emotional response and 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 also entrenching memories with an emotional content. Uh, so the amygdala and the locus ceruleus, and it seems to dampen down stress-induced neuroendocrine activity throughout the brain. Hmm. Um, and so because it's so useful uh, in all of these sorts of uh, areas it seems to make sense that that's actually the mediator that seems to be active when we pat our dog or or go for a walk or um, or, or any of these other interventions which seem to have been part of this particular study so rather than injecting people oxytocin we're prescribing a dog. A dog inducer. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that might be um, happening, I reckon, as well as the oxytocin um, mediator, is that it, I'm interested to hear what you guys think about this, but I've often seen people with uh, intractable syndromes of one kind or another suddenly have uh, be kicked off the track into another better place when they've got something external to focus on um, that, that they're caring for, that they're in- involved in. Um, whether it's uh, looking after a pet, looking after, suddenly looking after a child, looking after um, so- something passionate's come up for them or being, being part of a volunteer group or something that takes you out of yourself and stops you... You know, we all have times when our brain just goes into self-reflective crazy mode when you just think about nothing but what's going on and, you, and some, someone comes along and hits you on the face and says, don't be silly, we're all going to be dead soon, stop thinking about all this stuff, you know. So it's sometimes this sort of no, the notion of getting taken out of yourself and looking after something else that needs you, that sometimes seems to work. What, have you guys seen that 
effective? I've seen it again in the setting of dementia, uh, in agitated patients with dementia in nursing homes, for example, we occasionally use something called doll therapy, mm-hmm. and basically it's a provision of, a, of an infant doll that provides the person with dementia uh, an object to care for and to, as you say, take them out of themselves and to provide a caring focus for another being. So that's the, the context with which I'm familiar with it. Now, isn't that interesting? Because you wonder whether that could be combining both the oxytocin bonding parental thing as well as the and, and social instinct. thing. Yeah, you know, and it, instinct, it's, yes. it's used almost uh, universally for female people with dementia. So mm-hmm. it's, it's yeah. less uh, effective in males, perhaps because that bonding or nurturing inst- instinct is uh, uh, less well-developed, or perhaps in, in males it's better directed towards an animal rather than mm. towards an infant. Have they used um, uh, dogs with men in, in dementia settings? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, the Dogs with Dementia program runs across both genders, but uh, doll therapy as such is largely restricted to women. Fantastic. So where do, where do we stand at the moment? With the, is, is there other active trials happening in, in Victoria? Do you know? As far as I know, um, most of the active trials that I can see when I look through um, Medline and PubMed are in America, actually, with veterans. Um, and that might reflect the larger population of veterans, which, you know, which I have um, based on... They combat in various different places. Are there any uh, thoughts about its cost-effectiveness? Because one imagines it might take many thousands of dollars, perhaps, to train up an animal like this and, and implement it. How does its economic benefit uh, stack up against other therapies? It's a really good question. None, none of the th- so I had a look at a couple of articles individually, and then a big review article which sort of looked at mm, four hundred or so articles from various places around the world, and none of them talked about cost effectiveness, hmm. which is an interesting point. It wouldn't take to I mean, you, you, you stack up a bit of cash in America on drugs and treatment pretty quickly. To I reckon you'd, it'd stack up pretty well, I imagine, because that's pretty costly. That sort of and the veterans uh, have poor access to a lot of it over there. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess a lot of these therapy dogs are trained up in private homes, for example, so uh, mm. some of the cost is indirect rather than direct. Mm. Well, I, I, as, with my N equals one, <laughs> I swear by dogs. I think they're wonderful. <laughs> Actually, it was, I was uh, thinking about this this week. Um, the cartoonist who died this week, and I've just... Bill Leake. Bill Leake. I remember watching him do a um, series many years ago on his own mental health issues, and, uh, I, and I, hope, I hope I'm right attributing him this to him i think i am he said um uh, i had the black dog for a while and then i got a black dog and got over it he said he just swore by his companion dog and uh and i, re- I reckon it's a lot in it i really do so fascinating all right we'll hear, hear more as we go along about therapy dogs no doubt thank you perry pardon Triple R Radiotherapy's sliding scale. Exponential increments of disturbance from the patient who consults a therapist and the therapist who then consults their own therapist. That right at the top, at the pinnacle, is the therapist's therapist who's the most disturbed of all. Well, who does the therapist therapist see? Well, the therapist therapist have seen their own therapist, so they, they see the therapist therapist therapist, and those people are usually permanently hospitalised. <laughs> Located in the basement of Alfred Psychiatry. Excellent. Triple R's very own therapist, therapist, therapist. Radiotherapy, Sunday mornings, 10 to 11. Well, uh, SK, you've been uh, watching some Bates Motel series, the Bates Motel series, and you've got some interesting 
ideas about it. Yes, I've been binge watching Bates Motel, which is a series that I simply stumbled across whilst surfing the net. Uh, apparently, there's about five series of it that have been made thus far, and it's, it's now ceased production. I've uh, thus far watched the first couple of seasons, but it really fleshes out the whole uh, Norman Bates mythology. Uh, many listeners would be familiar with Alfred Hitchcock's seminal Psycho, of course, and the complex dynamic that it's set up between the lead character Norman Bates and his mother, who in uh, the film Psycho was this ever-present figure who uh, was, was long deceased but cast a long shadow over her son, Norman. And uh, what Bates Motel does is it delves deep into the backstory of Norman and Norma Bates and uh, tells the story of how uh, Norman, as we know him in the film, came to be. And traditionally, uh, people who've reviewed the film Psycho have attributed a very specific diagnosis to Norman Bates, and traditionally that has been one of uh, dissociative identity disorder, or what used to be known as multiple personality disorder. So in times of stress in the film Psycho, Norman would dissociate, part of his consciousness would split off from conscious awareness, and he would, uh, to all intents and purposes, become his mother, and he would commit horrific crimes when uh, possessed by the personality of his mother, for example. So that's got a lot of airplay over the years, but I want this morning to... Bit of a fraught concept in itself, we have to say. It is. It's a controversial area within psychiatry, but this whole idea of dissociation itself is very interesting, and it might uh, pay some might be worthwhile explaining the concept uh, to listeners. I mean, we all dissociate as part of normal human life anabolics. And uh, an example that might be accessible to our listeners is, have you, I'll ask the question, have you ever driven for an hour along a route that you know very well, perhaps the route that gets you to work each morning, and the time seems to pass without a conscious awareness when you get to the other end of all of the complex things you were doing to navigate traffic and respond to traffic laws and signals and idiotic other drivers. Uh, you get to the destination without a conscious recollection of all you've been doing for the past hour. That's an everyday example of dissociation. You split off that conscious part of your existence that requires attention during driving and mentally you can be somewhere quite different whilst you're driving to work. Another example of dissociation might be if you're having an oral exam and this used to happen to me during med school, the exam would last for an hour you knew damn well that it would last for an hour, but you walk out of it and it seems like it was 10 minutes. Your awareness of how time passes splits off. So those are everyday examples of dissociation. I used to do deliberately in the exam setting. I used to actually tell myself to dissociate with the anxiety. And so I would, you talked about leaving things at the door before. I used to, I used to um, have a mechanism of leaving my anxiety at the door as I walked through and dissociating from anxiety for the hour. That was my technique of getting through exams. Really? And you got really through? Well. Okay. Very well. Yeah. It, it is a response to, anxi- <laughs> to anxiety in many ways, and that's part of the psychological dynamic that underlies it in yep. dissociative identity disorder. At times of extreme stress, you block off one part of your life from conscious awareness. The backstory of Norma and Norman then, uh, a lot of the success of the series I think uh, lies in how it was cast. The the actress who plays Norma Bates, uh, Vera Farmiga, a little known actress but she's uh, perhaps best known for a a series of uh, low budget horror films outside of her work in Bates Motel and the young guy who plays Norman, a guy called Freddie Highmore, I think he's got to be about 15 in the first series and he really conveys this sense of creepiness that you might associate with a young Norman Bates really very, very well. He's uh, quite quite a good young actor. Uh, The supposed backstory of Norma and Norman. Uh, Norma herself had a very uh, horrible childhood. She had an abusive father. 
and uh, when her mother was absent from the house, she was sexually abused on an almost daily basis by an older brother. So uh, that's the sort of background that we commonly associate with women who subsequently go on to develop things like borderline personality disorder that we alluded to earlier and indeed dissociative identity M- disorder. Men and women. Men and women, yes. Uh, more common in women, or more, more commonly diagnosed in That's women. That's a debatable point, and I'm going to tell you that I disagree with that entirely. Working with uh, people coming out of jail, borderline personality disorder is in a different place. M- maybe we could devote yep. an hour to yep, that let's on do another that. occasion. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Norma himself uh, was uh, witness to intramarital abuse of his own father, of his mother, and in fact the series tells us that uh, Norman killed his father whilst having observed him beating up his mother. And uh, Norma covered up that murder of Norman's. She made it look as though a bookcase had fallen on Mr Bates so that uh, Norman would be spared the forensic consequences of this. And after this covered-up crime, the two of them flee to a, to a new life to set up a, a motel in a rural setting, which becomes the eponymous Bates Motel, which they recreated, I think, in, uh, in Canada for the purposes of the series. When they arrive in this new setting, uh, there's a series of interactions with various townspeople that inevitably leads to murder, uh, both murders committed by Norman and murders committed by his mother, uh, some of which are carried out to protect Norman. And what the series does really well is illustrate this complex dynamic between mother and son, which perhaps led to the, the personality that later become, uh, became Norman Bates. It's a very ambivalent relationship. We see uh, Norman trying to assert his independence as an adolescent. We see Norma try to pull him back into the fold of the the mother-son dyad, if you like, because Norman really is all that Norma has, so she's very protective of him. She gives him very well-meaning advice about uh, choices that he makes, and it's always portrayed as a a controlling-type mechanism on behalf of Norma to, to... warn Norman against doing other things but she always turns out to be right so Norman learns that mother's advice is always right and in his best interest so psychologically very complex we see a number of things in the first couple of series of Bates Motel that point us towards a different diagnosis for Norman Bates we see that at times of stress he goes blank for periods that might vary from several seconds at a time to uh, blocks of several minutes, you know, possibly up to 15 minutes, half an hour. Uh, People observe him during these periods. He's uh, awake but unresponsive. He can't be communicated with. He just seems to go blank. At other times, it's clearly implied that during these blackouts, as we call them, uh, he commits crimes, including rape and murder. We also see him at times during the first two seasons, uh, frankly, hallucinating. At times he sees and hears his mother both giving him advice and telling him to do things, which he does invariably with bad consequences, and these things can result in murder as well. So if you look at the phenomenology or the symptomatology, if you like, of what Norman was exhibiting as a teenager at the age of about 15 and 16, he has blank periods, he has episodes of hallucinosis, uh, which he can't distinguish from reality and which lead him to commit crimes. And when you think about the sort of diagnosis that that might be representative of in an adolescent boy, to me the diagnosis of temporal lobe epilepsy uh, brings to mind. 
temporal lobe epilepsy uh, is a form of epilepsy that has its roots deep in the hippocampus, so the medial temporal lobe, which is the seat of uh, memory, in particular short-term memory. So when people have a temporal lobe seizure that doesn't generalise to other parts of the brain where the seizure activity is just localised to the medial temporal lobe, they'll often lose time for the duration of the seizure. They won't have an awareness of time having passed and they'll be amnesic for events that did occur. There's a number of epiphenomena to temporal lobe epilepsy as well. This phenomenon of dissociation is really quite well described as a temporal lobe phenomenon. And in relation to that example, you gave anabolics about uh, dissociating deliberately during exams to make the time pass quickly. Your awareness of time was distorted as you were invoking your medial temporal lobe to that task. <laughs> temporal lobe epilepsy can also involve hallucinations. And these can be multimodal, often, uh, you know, as part of an epileptic aura, this sort of sense that you're about to have a seizure, uh, people might get a, a sensory experience and it's classically described as an olfactory aura or a smell aura and people describe smells such as rotting meat or burning rubber, for example, as a precursor to going on and having a full-blown seizure, particularly when there's a temporal lobe focus for that. But you can have auditory and visual hallucinations as part of temporal lobe epilepsy as well and when trying to make a diagnosis of somebody in any part of medicine not just psychiatry if you've got any number of different symptoms that could be explained by one diagnosis it's probably better and more parsimonious if you like to invoke that single diagnosis as the explanation rather than saying the person could have diagnosis a b and c to explain all of these things the other aspect of temporal lobe epilepsy which i will ask you to correct me on if i'm wrong uh, is that uh, people will do things which are markedly out of out of character and could be quite impulsive or bizarre during the periods of time where they're dissociating. Is that right? Absolutely. There's personality change described both as a consequence of long-term epilepsy and as manifest during temporal lobe seizures. So you're quite right there. We do see later on in Bates Motel, and this goes out to season five, but I think in season four, which I've oh, not seen yet. We're going to need you to report back once you've seen season <laughs> yeah. five, I think, see I, what I have, happens later on. I have read ahead, and there's a bit of a spoiler alert here, but apparently in season four, Norma does have Norman committed to a psychiatric institution because she becomes concerned by his increasingly bizarre behaviour, and it's during this admission that a psychiatrist actually makes the diagnosis in him of dissociative identity disorder. And I think following that diagnosis, uh, Norma remarries. She marries the local town sheriff. This provokes a fit of rage in Norman who tries to uh, poison both himself and mother in the Bates house with carbon monoxide gas and actually does succeed in killing mum. So we boiler alert. But he survives. She's buried and he digs her up. Uh, and develops this fantasy that she's still alive so that they can be together in perpetuity. And that's said to be the mechanism behind the development of dissociative identity disorder in Norman, which is the traditional diagnosis. But uh, in medicine, neurology always trumps psychiatry, and it's one of the diagnostic criteria, if you look at the diagnostic manual, uh, DSM-5, for dissociative identity disorder, that the symptoms must not be better accounted for by another condition, including such things as schizophrenia or temporal lobe epilepsy. And I would argue on the basis of what we see in Bates Motel that there is a neurological trump to the psychiatric disorder that Norman traditionally has had. 
But then you could also argue that this is a very artificial distinction between the psychiatric phenomena that we observe as psychiatrists in our practice and the neurology of what underlies the processes in the brain. Absolutely, and, and it's my view that uh, most psychiatry at the end of the day is basically neurology, and certainly we see that undeniably in disorders such as dementing illnesses, where clearly there's a neurological substrate to what's going on. It produces psychiatric symptoms. Epilepsy in itself used to be looked after by psychiatrists in the days where there was no effective treatment for epilepsy. People with epilepsy were confined in asylums alongside people with schizophrenia. Alongside tertiary syphilis. Yes, yeah, which is clearly an infective disease and neurology and psychiatry have very parallel histories if tall man was here i'd goad him by saying uh, neurology tends to take ownership of a disorder once there's an effective treatment discovered for it well i remind you that freud was a neurologist so we've, we started way, way back there with the, the blurring of the duality theory so and we're coming full circle <laughs> that's a whole whole program in itself that's fascinating thank you so much well i'm going to try and dig up uh, the Bates Motel and see if I can watch some more. Coming to the end of our program, thank you so much, SK. Thank you so much, Perry Pardum, and to Penny, our guest, uh, for talking to us today about the uh, Gopher Gyne walk, which hopefully everyone will get involved in. Thank you to Kent for being our panellist today and helping us as always. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.